So we've been walking through uh, this, this semester going over biblical themes, which is in the realm of uh, biblical theology is kind of the giant banner, if you will, but we're tracing biblical themes. What are the things throughout scripture that we will see kind of the red thread? So if the Bible, what we've said every week, the Bible isn't 66 random books kind of thrown together to make the Christian religious textbook. Rather, the Bible is one story that is ultimately about Jesus Christ, God's Son. And that reality, that it's one story ultimately about him, is what is best for us. It is not a a story about us. It's not a roadmap to our way of life or anything like that. It is ultimately about his Son. And yet God, in his infinite grace, uh, allows us to be a part of that story and to see his son and to worship his son. So we've looked at huge themes like kingdom and covenant, kind of like a a structure with which all the other themes hang on. Uh, Lee taught on the theme of food, tracing food all the way from the forbidden fruit in the garden to the marriage supper of the lamb. And today we're going to look at a theme that's kind of like the plot line. If you want to think of uh, the, the scriptures as a movie or as, as one story as it is, this is the plot line of scripture. And it is the reality that the seed of the woman would come and crush the head of the serpent. Sinclair Ferguson calls this, again, the underlying plot line of the entire Bible. And just so you know, in preparing this teaching, I spent the past like two, three days cutting two-thirds of this, just because this theme is so everywhere all throughout the scriptures. This was eventually like a a four-hour lecture, so I whittled it down to a 50-minute one, Lord willing. Uh, But it's absolutely everywhere. So let's, let's jump in and look at this theme, the the serpent crusher is kind of our our title, but our our key passage will be Genesis 3.15. Genesis 3.15. And so uh, open your Bibles. God has created everything. Before there was anything, there was him. And out of his glory and out of his love, he pours out creation. He speaks it into being, and you see uh, the day and the night, and stars, and the moon, and the sun, and land, and water, and birds, and creeping things, and then he makes man in his image and puts them in this glorious garden paradise and says, fill the earth and subdue it for my namesake. And then we get to Genesis 3, and there's this figure who shows up, this character, a, a serpent, a snake who arrives on the scene and comes to the woman, Adam silently standing by and tempts her to doubt God, doubt his character, doubt his commandments, particularly the goodness of his commandments. He didn't tell you to not eat this tree because you'll die. You're not going to die, right? He's calling God a liar. And then he questions God's character. He told you not to eat of this tree because he knows if you do, you'll be like him. So the serpent whispering lies, Eve hears and believes And Adam, right next to her, also believes, and they both eat the fruit, instantly realize that they've been lied to, they've been tricked by this serpent. God comes and now tells them what is going to happen as a result of their rebellion. And so we see filling the earth is going to be very difficult, very painful. Eve, you're going to have great pain in childbirth. This multiplication, this filling the earth is going to be difficult. And subduing the earth, Adam, this cultivating the garden so that it would spread all over creation is going to be very difficult. Instead of good, glorious, perfect fruit coming from the ground, thorns are going to come from the ground. And then there's this other curse that's not given to Adam and Eve, but it's given to the serpent. So Genesis 3, 14 through 15, this is the key passage for this whole lesson today. And one of the key passages for all of Scripture. 
Genesis 3, 14 through 15. Look at it there in your notes. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And then notice here, I will put enmity, hostility between you and the woman, you and Eve, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So this is one of the most important, if not the most important passages in all of scripture. This is, if you want to say it this way, the first proclamation of the gospel. Genesis 3.15, and it's uh, setting up the rest of the biblical story. So again, if you think about this as the plot line of Scripture, everything that's going to come from this, where Genesis 1, 2, 3, everything else for the rest of the Scriptures is going to flow from this verse right here. So some key things for us to see, to really understand what is happening in the Bible. Key things that we see in this passage. Look, number one, there's going to be offspring. Okay, there's going to be offspring. From the woman, there's going to be offspring. And from the serpent, there's going to be offspring. From the woman, there's going to be offspring who will be the the people of God. We'll see that in a second. And from the serpent, there's going to be offspring who are going to be those opposed to the people of God, those who oppose the purposes of God. So obviously we know that the serpent is not going to give birth, have offspring in the same way the woman will, but essentially the picture that's being painted here is the serpent is going to influence, is going to empower people that will come from him to oppose the offspring of the woman, the people of God. The serpent, by the way, is the devil. That's, we assume that when we read Genesis. Revelation 12 makes that clear. There's this great dragon that's thrown down, and Revelation 12 says, that ancient serpent, this dragon, the ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan. So super, super clear. And Satan is going to have offspring. The serpent is going to have offspring as well. So there's these two sets of offspring, and then notice the second thing we see. There's going to be hostility between these two offsprings. So it started with the woman and the serpent is going to continue with their offspring. Andrew uh, Nacelli, who wrote one of the books that I have recommended at the end of your notes, wrote, the rest of the Bible's storyline traces the ongoing battle between the snake's offspring and the woman's offspring. So, So think about this. Right here in Genesis 3.15, the scriptures have just given you the framework for the rest of the Bible. The rest of this story is going to be a battle between two offsprings, the serpents and the woman. So when you keep reading Genesis and when you read Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and Joshua and Judges, all throughout, you should be looking for this battle because it just framed the story for us. The rest, everything that flows from the garden is going to be this battle between two Offsprings. That's the second thing we see. The third thing we see, notice here, the serpent is particularly cursed by God. Verse 14, when God says to the serpent, cursed are you. Adam and Eve received curses. The ground is cursed, that's for Adam, and childbirth is cursed, that's for Eve. But they themselves don't receive a direct curse from God. The serpent does. And one of the things we'll see throughout the rest of the scriptures is this is Uh, meant to be, for you and for me, an identifier. Those who are cursed are of the serpent. So if the question that naturally would come up is, how do we know who is whose 
offspring, the way we tell throughout the scriptures is the cursed. If someone is cursed, that's not just a random God's upset, so he just gives them this cursed thing. That is meant to be an identifier for you and for me, the readers. Oh, this person is the offspring of the serpent. And likewise, when someone is blessed, that's meant to be an identifier for us. This person is the offspring of the woman. This person is uh, of the people of God. So blessings and curses will be identifiers of who is whose offspring. And then the last thing, the most important thing for us to see is there is a promised victory in this great conflict that will happen throughout all of Scripture between the woman's offspring and the serpent's offspring. There is promised victory through one offspring, one seed of the woman. Look again at Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity, hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, plural, and he singular, one offspring of the woman will bruise your head and you shall bruise his singular heel. So this great battle that will happen all throughout scripture between the serpent's people and God's people will ultimately be finished and won by one offspring of the woman who doesn't just defeat the serpent's offspring, but defeats the serpent himself. We have the gospel here. Seconds after the forbidden fruit has been eaten. So you see those key factors ultimately will come through this one offspring who will defeat the serpent himself. Notice there, there's a wound, a bruising or a crushing. You could translate the Hebrew word either way. Uh, the, the offspring of the woman will have his heel bruised by the serpent, his heel crushed by the serpent. He'll be wounded, but it's a survivable wound, whereas the serpent is going to have his head crushed his head bruised, which is a mortal wound. Okay, so those are all the key things we need to see from this passage. So for, throughout the rest of scripture, as you're reading, key words we need to look for that are meant to grab you and throw you back into Genesis 3.15 are these. When you see seed or offspring, you're meant to think woman and serpent, Genesis 3.15. When you see cursed and blessed, again, those are the identifiers who is the offspring of the serpent and who is the offspring of the woman. When you see bruised or crushed, you're meant to think Genesis 3.15. When you see woman and when you see serpent, or if you want to say dragon or leviathan, which is like this giant sea serpent, or adder, another word for snake, all these words that are meant to be a reference to the garden serpent. Uh, or when you see woman, by the way, some of this will totally make sense of some of the weird passages like Jesus at the wedding of Cana and Mary, his mother, who he loves with all his heart, comes to him and says, hey, uh, you know, go turn water into wine. And he says, woman, it's not my time. You ever read that? And you're like, why is he being either rude to his mom or very impersonal to his mom? Perhaps it's because Jesus is calling her something that would grab the reader and yank them back to Genesis 3.15 and what Jesus is ultimately here to do. Jesus on the cross, looking down at John and his mother, Mary, who he loves with all his heart. What does he call her? Woman. Right? Again, as if to say, I'm doing what we came to do, what the Father has sent me to do. Okay, so woman and serpent, and then the last, head and feet. Right? He will put all things under his feet. Isn't just a nice prophecy about Jesus' authority. That's the psalm saying something's going to happen where this Messiah fulfills this passage. You see that? 
Okay, so those are the key words that are meant to, as you read, as you're in Leviticus and you see crushing head, boom, that's meant to yank you back into Genesis 3.15. Let me give you an example uh, of how, how this is uh, meant to pull us back from something, maybe a story where we don't often think about it. Uh, David and Goliath, one of the most famous stories in all the scriptures, you have Goliath, who is uh, of the Philistines, who we'll see in just a second, comes from the cursed line. Goliath is defying the living God as his armor is described in 1 Samuel 7. It's described as scaly, right? Not just Samuel throwing out information for fun. He's describing him as this giant snake man who's come out and he's defying the living God. And then you have David, the anointed king who's been anointed before this passage, shows up picks up a stone, slings it. Where does the stone land in this giant snake man who's defying the living God? What does it crush? His head. And he falls down, and David runs and cuts off his head. The story of David and Goliath is meant to scream Genesis 3.15. You see that? And that will happen all throughout the scriptures. As Jim Hamilton, the pastor professor, says, bad guys get broken heads in the Bible. It's because this is the theme that goes throughout. So that is kind of the foundation, the beginning of this plot line story. There's going to be this conflict between two offspring, two seeds, and ultimate victory will come through one offspring of the woman that will crush the head of the serpent himself. Okay, so let's, let's, let's watch this unfold a little bit in Genesis. Look at Genesis 4, the very next chapter. So this has just happened. The world has been broken. Adam and Eve have been sent out of the garden. These curses have been placed upon the ground and on childbirth. And we see this in the very next chapter. Now Adam knew his wife, Eve, and she conceived and bore a son, Cain, saying, this is Eve saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. So we see this offspring coming from the woman, and she has this exclamation, She's just heard this promise from God. You will have an offspring that will crush the serpent's head. So there would be this expectation, Cain is that offspring. And she says, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. This excitement that the promise will maybe be fulfilled in Cain. And as the story goes, Cain and his brother Abel offer sacrifices to God. God does not accept Cain's. Cain draws his brother out into the field and kills Abel. And we see this in verse 10. The Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now, cursed are you. Where's the only other place we've heard that thus far? To the serpent. What is Genesis identifying? Is Cain this great Genesis 3.15 deliverer? No. Who is he? He is the offspring of the serpent. And then we have, by the way, a long genealogy of Cain. Is that just a random family tree? The Bible, you know, wants to do 23 and me and kind of help us out. No, what is the Bible showing? Cain is the offspring of the serpent, and here's the line of the offspring of the serpent. And if you trace the descriptions, it just gets more and more and more and more wicked. And then Eve and Adam come and have another son named Seth. And she says this in Genesis 4.25, God has appointed for me another offspring. Again, that's meant to pull you back into Genesis 3.15. Instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. And then we get a genealogy of Seth. The scriptures are very literally showing us 
Cain, offspring of serpent, Seth, offspring of the woman that will ultimately lead to Noah. Genesis 5, look at the next story. We have at the end of this long Seth uh, genealogy, Lamech, who's Noah's father, they have Noah, and he says this, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one, Noah, shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. So like Cain, there's this expectation, Noah, maybe Noah is the promised one. And he's pictured as this kind of new Adam figure. After the flood comes, there's uh, these descriptions of uh, birds and fish and sprouting plants, just like there was in Genesis. And Noah's given the same commission that Adam is given. Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. And so there's this idea, maybe he's the one, the promised one of Genesis 3.15. And notice, there's this kind of development in the story. Not only do they think, oh, maybe Noah will crush the head of the serpent. They think maybe this offspring will undo the effects of the fall. He's not just going to beat the bad guy. He's going to bring us relief from the cursed ground. He's going to undo all the works of the serpent and perhaps bring us back to the garden. And we see Noah even becomes a man of the vine and plants a garden as this new Adam figure. And what happens? He falls in the garden, just like Adam. And then right after he gets drunk and has this fall, this strange event happens with his sons in Genesis 9. Look down at verse 25, Noah wakes up and knows his son Ham has done something dishonorable, and he curses Ham and his son Canaan. He said, Noah said, cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants to his brothers. And he also said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan uh, be his servant. So you see right there, a curse and a blessing. Who is the offspring of the woman? Shem. Everyone from his offspring will lead to Abraham. We'll see that in a second. And who's the cursed? Ham and his son Canaan. And we have a genealogy there for him. And notice, again, if you look careful, if you don't just blow by the genealogies, who who, who fills that genealogy? Egypt, Babylon, Canaan, the Philistines, or let me say it this way, all of Israel's enemies for the rest of the Bible are all in Ham's line. The Bible telling us right in Genesis 9, here's the offspring of the serpent. The one Saul will be fighting. The ones David will be fighting. The one that will oppress Israel all throughout their history. So you see that the blessings and the curses meant to draw us back to Genesis 3.15. So there's this anticipation as it unfolds, as the plot unfolds. Is it Cain? No. He's the seed of the serpent. Is it Noah? No, he falls like Adam, and his son is cursed. Ham is cursed. They're the seed of the serpent, and his son Shem is blessed. He is the seed of the woman, and that eventually leads us to Abraham. Notice how the Bible, by the way, if you just look at the structure of Genesis, it will slow down and then speed up really quickly with the genealogy and then slow down again and speed up really quickly. And so we're seeing this plot unfold, and then we get, again, another slowdown to Abraham. Because God's going to develop this Genesis 3.15 promise here. He calls Abram, later Abraham in Genesis 12. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. We talked about this as the Abrahamic covenant. We looked at that last week. But look at this, verse 2. Again, remember all the key words we talked about. Verse 2. And I will make you a great nation, right? Seed, offspring will come from you. Kids will come from you. 
old man Abraham, and I will bless you, there's another key word, and make your name great so that you will be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. There's another key word. And from you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Okay, so we see, again, this offspring promise. We see that uh, the blessing of Abraham is actually going to go out throughout the whole earth and bless all the nations. So again, this idea of not just crushing the serpent, but undoing the serpent's work, getting us kind of back to the garden, paradise. And then we see those who oppose Abraham in particular. Abraham's family are going to show themselves to be the offspring of the serpent. God is saying, I've made this Genesis 3.15 promise. Someone will come and deliver from this wicked serpent, and I'm going to do it through Abraham and his family. And so anybody who opposes you or your family is going to show that they oppose God and his word and his promises, just like the serpent did. You see that. So we see this promise, and then blessing will go out from them. And then, you know, we have the problem of there's no kids And Abraham and Sarah try to take things into their own hands with Hagar, and things go bad, but God still mercifully gives them Isaac. And we're meant to think, there he is. There's the seed. There's the offspring. And then what's the very next thing God tells Abraham to do? Go sacrifice him. Which stirs us and, you know, bothers us because it's child sacrifice, as all child sacrifice should do. But in the story of the scriptures, you're meant to even have a greater reaction of, He just said to sacrifice the offspring. What would happen to the promise? What would happen to the serpent crusher? He would be cut off. So Abraham hears God. The scriptures, by the way, are very clear that God's doing this as a test in Genesis 22. And then uh, Abraham obeys God, goes to sacrifice Isaac. God stops him, of course. And then God provides a ram to be sacrificed. And then we see this right at the end of Genesis 22. Again, look for the key words. I will surely bless you, and I will surely surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heavens and of the sand of the seashore. So there's this reaffirmation of, I will bless you with offspring. Offspring will pour out from you. The offspring of the woman, right, will be your line. But then look at this. And your offspring, singular, in Hebrew, your offspring, one offspring, shall possess the gates of his enemies and your offspring shall all and in your offspring singular shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you've obeyed my voice you will have offspring plural right we continue to see the offspring of the woman but there will come one offspring who will possess the gate of his enemies he'll crush the head of the serpent or if you like the gates of hell will not prevail and blessing will come through him All of the serpent's work will be undone as this one offspring blesses all nations. Again, Paul's going to very explicitly highlight this as Jesus in Genesis 3. We see uh, this promise again reaffirmed to Isaac and Jacob in Genesis 26 and then in Genesis 28. And then we get to the Exodus. So I've spent a lot of time in Genesis to show you how this is unfolding. The drama of Genesis of who are the offsprings, what are the lines, and who is the one seed offspring who's going to kill the serpent, crush his head, and get us back to the garden. But since we don't have nine hours, I'm going to have to speed up a little bit. Uh, so the rest of this teaching, until we get to the New Testament, it's going to be like you know, flying over in a plane, and I'm just going to be pointing at stuff. 
Because again, I, I've, I put tons of verses in your notes that are in no way exhaustive, but I will not address even half of them. That's just to show you how saturated your Bible is with this theme of the serpent crusher crushing the head of the serpent. So we leave Genesis and we get to Exodus, where Israel, the people of God, who we've seen Abraham's family, are now a huge nation and they're in the land of the serpent. We already saw back in Genesis 10, Exodus is from the cursed line, or sorry, Exodus. Egypt is from the cursed line of Ham in Genesis 10. Ezekiel will later describe Egypt as being like a dragon. Again, serpent and dragon is kind of used interchangeably throughout. So they are in the land of the serpent. Right. Pharaoh, this is, we don't really get a description in the scriptures, but from just historical background, Pharaoh would wear a hood with a snake on top. So this serpent land's king literally wears a serpent as his crown. And the first thing we see in Exodus is this serpent king kills who? Offspring. The offspring of Israel. He goes after the babies of this offspring of the woman, something we'll see Herod do and something we'll see Satan do in Revelation 12. And God delivers them and the Psalms as they recall back to the Exodus, as they describe what's actually happening in this Exodus event as God's sending the plagues. Psalm 74 says this, my God, God, my King is from old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. You divided the sea by your might, the Red Sea. You divided it by your might. You broke the hands of the sea monster on the waters. Verse 14, you crushed the heads of Leviathan, this great sea serpent. You crushed the heads of Leviathan. You gave him for food as the creatures of the wilderness. You see the Exodus described as God crushing the head of the great serpent. That's not an accident. That's not a coincidence. The scriptures screaming, God keeps his Genesis 3, 3.15 promises. You see that in the Exodus. You see this weird story as Israel is wandering in the wilderness. This really paragraph-long story in the great book of Numbers that we all skip. We barely made it through Leviticus. We get to like a census, and you're like, no thanks, Psalms the rest of the year, right? Uh, so if you keep reading past the census, you get to this story in Numbers 21 where Israel are complaining, shocker, and they're saying, we want to go back to Egypt. And so as judgment, serpents come into the camp, and they're biting Israel, and Israel are dying. It's as if God is saying, you want to go back to serpent land? Let me show you what it's like. Let me, let me remind you what life in the serpent land was like and how are they delivered. Moses puts a serpent on a pole, is how we often describe it. Most commentators will say it's actually a serpent that's been impaled by a pole. How are they saved from the deadly bite of the serpent? A crushed serpent is lifted up for them to gaze at. And it's not a story that only appears in Genesis 21 in a random paragraph in between a bunch of censuses. Several hundred years later, on a rooftop in the middle of the night, a rabbi named Jesus is secretly meeting with a rabbi named Nicodemus, and he says, how is the whole world going to be delivered from the deadly serpent? As Moses lifted up, the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man is going to be lifted up. But we'll get there in a little bit. 
So we see, again, all throughout these stories, these, or throughout Israel's history, these stories over and over again of God crushing the serpent, reminding us of Genesis 3.15. Moses, in his final sermon in Deuteronomy, uh, right before Israel's about to go into the promised land, he's warning them, obey God, follow him, don't listen to the lies of those other nations who don't follow God. And he describes their uh, influence as the poison of serpents. Again, God's calling you to this promised land to follow him and to worship him alone. Don't listen to the other nations who are going to whisper you and draw you away from him just like the serpent did because they are the seed of the serpent. We see those descriptions. The book of Judges. Why do we have two stories, two very, very, very clear stories in the book of Judges where a woman kills a uh, enemy of Israel and kills them very explicitly. The scriptures go out of their way to describe the woman crushes his head, either with a tent peg or with a giant millstone, right? Again, in the darkest period in Israel's history, some might say a reminder, God keeps his promises. Genesis 3.15 is still true even in the midst of this judge's mess. Again, seeing it over and over again in the kingdom of Israel, Again, we're flying over. You have this weird story where the Ark of the Covenant is captured and taken into the Philistines' temple of their false god, Dagon. Philistines, again, uh, an enemy of Israel, seed of the serpent. And what happens? The statue of Dagon falls, and what happens? His head is crushed before the living God. David and Goliath, we already talked about that story. He's wearing scaly armor, and his head is crushed by the seed of the serpent. The covenant of David. God comes to David. David wants to build the temple. God comes to David and promises him what? Offspring. And not just offspring of the woman, the offspring. In 2 Samuel 7, 12, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you. And we see this will eventually lead to the serpent crusher promised through uh, David, this Genesis 3.15, seed of the woman. Continuing to fast forward, sorry, going a million miles an hour. Israel, uh, all throughout their history, their enemies are described as serpents. Again, not an accident. They're meant to say, you are God's people. You're meant to reflect to the world what it means to be ruled by God. And everyone else who would pull you away from Yahweh are the seed of the serpent. Babylon is called the offspring of Serpents, uh, the woman's offspring, right? God's people are often said to crush serpents in their victory over the enemy. Psalm 91, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Verse 13, and you will tread on the lion and the adder, serpent. Young lions and serpents, you will trample underfoot. Again, what's that referring to? Genesis 3.15, you will crush your enemies because your God is powerful and keeps his promises. And then, as the story goes, we all know Israel is not this great, obedient kingdom of people who do reflect to the world. What does it mean to be ruled by God? In fact, they constantly rebel. They do happily allow the, the venom, the poisonous venom of the seeds of the serpent to pull them away from God. And we see, tragically, all throughout the prophets, Israel's sin. Israel's rebellion shows that they're actually like the serpent and are actually like those who are the seed of the serpent and they will receive judgment on their heads 
prophet after prophet after prophet declares. And so there's this terrifying development we see all throughout the scriptures that family line, being an offspring of the woman or the offspring of the serpent, isn't just about ethnicity. It's not just about uh, who your dad was or who your grandpa was or what family you belong to. Rather, rebellion on your part shows you're the seed of the serpent. Or to use the language of Ephesians 2, by nature, children, offspring of wrath. By nature, sons, offspring of disobedience. Following the course of this wicked world. Following the prince of the power of the air. The serpent. That is terrifying, horrible news for rebels like you and me. We can't just claim my family tree is the pure one. My rebellion shows who my father is and that I'm a child of wrath and that I'm a son of disobedience, a terrifying realization in the prophets. So as the prophets have this terrifying reality, it also has the hope of redemption. God constantly promising he will bring deliverance. Our sin does not conquer the promises of Genesis 3.15, he will bring a deliverer, he will bring a, a Messiah, serpent crusher, right? This one offspring, and then we see, particularly in Isaiah 53, this Messiah, this serpent crusher will deliver us by being bruised, being crushed himself. Isaiah 53, verse 5. If we're all children of the serpent, if we're all of our father, the devil, how are we to be delivered by this Messiah, verse 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was, what's the word? Crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his wounds, by his bruising, we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Verse 9. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, although he's the only one who's actually the pure offspring of the woman and never drank the poison of the serpent, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, he didn't whisper lies like the serpent did. Verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. And he has put him to grief when his soul was made an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring and he shall prolong his days and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands out of the anguish of his soul. He shall see and be satisfied and his knowledge shall... The, and, his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many be accounted righteous, for he shall bear their iniquities. So this promise of this serpent crusher will come about through himself being crushed, God seeing him being crushed and being satisfied in such a way where he can look at the sons of serpents, you and I, and say they're righteous. That's the promise. And more than that, this uh, serpent-crushing deliverer will not only crush the serpent, but he will undo the serpent's effects. Carl preached on this uh, over Christmas. Isaiah 11, we see this new creation coming through uh, the, the shoot of the stump of Jesse, this 
son of David, this Messiah crusher. And in this new creation, we see children are playing with serpents. So serpents are there, but there's no harm. Children can put their hands over the, 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 the adder's den, things like that. And so there's this new creation where there's no longer any uh, effects of the serpent. There's no evil through this serpent crusher. So that's the, the great promise and anticipation as there's this dread of realizing, I can't say I'm safe just because of my family line. My wickedness shows who my father is, shows that I'm a son of disobedience. There's this great anticipation for his works to be undone. And then we have the arrival in the beginning of Matthew. So this has been the plot line, again, throughout the whole scriptures. Sinclair Ferguson says this, we need to remember that this conflict between the woman and the serpent, when we come to read the gospels, it is a major underlying theme in the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus. Its presence runs through every page of the story. The Gospels are the story of Jesus' conflict with the seed of the serpent, whether in the form of demons or in the inclining of hostility against him or in his efforts to conscript into his service Jesus' disciples, Peter and Judas. In the, tense summer, in the terse summary of language of the aged John, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So we see this all throughout the Gospels. You should be seeing this all throughout the Gospel of Matthew. First of all, why does Jesus need to bother with the incarnation? Why can't he just do what God did in Exodus and just show up on a mountain in a giant cloud? Why can't he come down that way? Because he must be born of a woman. He must be of the offspring of woman. Galatians 4, 4, when a fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. Again, Paul's not just listing random facts. He was born of a woman. Everybody's born of a woman, right? That's an unnecessary fact if it's just random. What's Paul doing? He's saying, Genesis 3.15, God sent his son to be the serpent crusher. And we see throughout his ministry, Jesus faces the serpent's servants, if you will, demons. What do demons do when Jesus walks into the room? They pee their pants. Are you here to destroy us before the time is done? What do they know? The serpent crusher's here, and we're of the serpent. Why are they cowering in terror? They know who Jesus is. We see Jesus face the servants of the serpent. We see Jesus face the offspring of the servants. There's this twist in Matthew. Those who are the offspring of the serpents aren't who you think they would be. Matthew 23, 29. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, right? the religious leaders, hypocrites. Thus you were witnesses against yourself that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, that's not just an insult. He's saying, I know who your father is. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? If you want it even clearer than that, John 8, you are of your father, the devil. There it is in John 8. Again, the people. What is it that identifies you as a son of the serpent? Leading people away from God leading people away from his word, leading people away from truth. That is exactly what the Pharisees do. Don't listen to that Jesus guy. Come follow us. It's by demons that he casts out demons, right? He's a blasphemer. He eats with sinners. They're constantly drawing people away from God. Jesus faces the offspring of serpents, and Jesus faces the serpent himself, the true offspring 
faces the true serpent and is tempted by him, not well-fed in a garden like Adam and Eve, but after fasting for 40 days, the serpent tempts him to doubt God's character and God's will, tempts him away with food, turn these stones to bread, notice. But unlike Adam, Jesus resists. He faces and is victorious to resist temptation, and we see he is bruised. He is crushed. Again, remember part of the Genesis 3.15, he will bruise your heel. The serpent crusher in his crushing will be bruised himself, and we see Jesus is crushed. Why is Jesus sweating blood in the Garden of Gethsemane? You think he's just scared of crucifixion? It's a horrid death, but thousands of others have faced it. There's reports of saints throughout church history singing on their crosses. Was Jesus weaker than them? Is Jesus just nervous about the physical ailments of crucifixion or a crown of thorns? Or does he know he's about to be crushed by the living God? He is about to, quite literally, take your eternal hell upon himself. He was bruised for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities so that the Father might look and be satisfied and count you and I righteous. He's crushed. More than that, he's cursed. Remember, everyone who hears, cursed are you, shows that they're offspring of the serpent or children of wrath or sons of disobedience. And where the offspring of the serpent here, cursed are you, Jesus Christ on the cross hears, cursed are you. Galatians 3.13, Jesus Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, as it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. On the cross, Jesus Christ hears, cursed are you, so that you and I can hear, blessed are you. The only one who has never drank the serpent's poison takes the curse of all those who have so that we might receive the pardon, might receive the blessing of the offspring of the woman. And by God's infinite mystery and mastery, we see by being bruised, by being crushed, he crushes the serpent. Right before he's about to go to the cross, what does he say to his disciples very confidently as he's about to be crushed? John 12, 31, now will the ruler of this world be cast out. The serpent who has ruled this world since Genesis 3 is about to be cast out. And when Jesus is raised victorious, what does he show his disciples? His wounds, his bruising, his bruised heel, if you will, and says, I've been crushed, and so is the serpent. Except after his crushing, he is raised Victorious By his wounds we are healed, and by his wounds the, serpents are, it, the serpent is crushed. Hebrews 2, 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same thing. He was born of a woman so that he could be the offspring of the woman. He partook of the same thing, that through death, 
through being crushed, he might destroy, he might crush the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. By being crushed, by his heel being bruised, he crushes the serpent's head and delivers all of those who, through fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. The serpent crusher, er, serpent crusher has come, he has crushed, and he has delivered us, and now all things are under his feet. And one day, as we look to the future, in the book of Revelation, we see there will be an ultimate crushing, where not only is the devil's head crushed, but all the effects of the serpent's work is undone, and he makes all things new. We see in Revelation 12 or Revelation 20, this kind of climactic battle. Notice the bookends of Scripture. Genesis 3.15, and then this great battle between the dragon serpent, who is the devil, and a lamb who appears as one slain, who conquers how? By his blood, by his wounds, by his bruise, by his crushing, he conquers and throws not only the serpent into the lake of fire for all of eternity, but death is thrown into the lake of fire. The serpent's effects into the lake of fire. So we see not only is it the plot line, it's the bookend, this battle between offspring. And then in Revelation 21, 22, two more glorious chapters after this victory has been brought where the serpent's head has been once and forever crushed at the end of time. We see all his effects are gone. All that was lost has been restored. We're in a sense brought back to the beautiful garden where behold, the dwelling place of God will be with man and we will see his face. Except this time, there's no serpent. There's no possibility of this ever being lost. Sinclair Ferguson says again, and so from beginning to the very end, from the Garden of Eden turned into a desert because of sin until Revelation 21 and 22, then that desert is turned back into a garden. The whole, Bible, the whole of the Bible is the story of this conflict, and we end it with the serpent crusher being victorious. And that's the story of the scriptures. So what does it have to do with us? Are we just watchers of this story like we would go watch a movie? Are we just passive participants uh, in this story? Not at all. We are the people of this serpent crusher. One of the things that we see, one of the things that we see that's radically shifted as Jesus has come into the world is now the true offspring, plural, right? The people of the people of God, the true offspring of the woman are not those who are just Abraham's biological kids. Rather, it's those who are children by faith, those who have been born again by the Spirit. Paul's going to talk about this in Galatians 3 and in Romans 9 very extensively. I'll just read Galatians 3, 7 through 9. Uh, now then, uh, the, or sorry, know then that it is those of the faith who are sons of Abraham. You, if you trust in Jesus. And the scriptures fore, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham. Verse 9, so then those who are of faith are blessed. Seed of the woman, right? So it's those who are of faith. Uh, we see that false teachers in kind of the church age, the age in which we now live, are, are labeled often as the seed of the serpent. Again, you identify yourself with the serpent if you spread his lies, particularly to draw people away from God and his truth and his glorious son. That's exactly what false teachers do. And then lastly, we, uh, as his 
people, the people of the serpent crusher, participate in his serpent crushing, if you will. We live in this, uh, we, we talk about this every week, we live in what's often called the now, but not yet. The already, but not yet. The serpent has been crushed. Christ has been crucified and raised and is seated at the right hand of God, but we're still this side of Revelation 12. We're this side of Revelation 20. Right? He hasn't been thrown into the lake of fire yet. All things are not made new yet. We're in this weird in-between space. And so now we, by the serpent crusher's power and with guaranteed victory, participate in his crushing. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Let me read two incredible verses. Luke 10, Jesus talking to his disciples. He said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to what? Tread on serpents. Is that just a random thing he's saying? No. You participate. He has given you authority to crush the works of the devil. Romans 16. Your obedience is known to all so that I rejoice over you, but I want you to, know, I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent to what is evil. Verse 20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under whose feet? Your feet. As Christ has gone and is seated at the right hand of God, he tells his people, go into the world and preach the gospel and make disciples. That is the work of crushing the serpent's head. We have guaranteed victory and Power, not from our own charisma and our ability to debate and our ability to reason, but rather eternal power from the serpent crusher himself. That's how we participate in this great story. So a couple practical applications for us as we, as we wrap up. We'll have time for a few questions. Number one, uh, how does this affect our lives? Number one, uh, crush the serpent. Crush the head of the serpent. How do we do that? Number one, perhaps most obvious, do not participate in the serpent's work. When you gossip, when you slander, when you lie, those aren't just random sins that are on a list of things Paul doesn't want you to do in the New Testament. That is actively participating in spreading the venom of the serpent. Notice how does Satan constantly tempt away God's people? Does he grab them and wrestle them to the ground and beat them up physically? No, he whispers into their ear. And when we do that as well, not just telling people to be atheists, but when we gossip about people and when we slander others, we are behaving like someone else who also whispers lies and also injects poison into the people of God. Likewise, when you encourage and when you build others up, you're not just raising people's self-esteem. You're not just doing something nice. Oh, I see they're frowning. Let me just go tell them that they're awesome, right? You're not just giving someone a pick-me-up. You are actively fighting against the serpent. You want to go crush the serpent, do this incredible cosmic thing, encourage somebody. Have it a constant mode in your heart that you are building up those around you. How do you think this church could have a witness, like Jesus says to his disciples, where people will look in and know those are Jesus' people by their love for one another. It's by killing all gossip and all slander and all works of the devil's venom and injecting 
praise of God and encouragement and building one another up. So that's one way to crush the serpent. Another way is to just kill sin. I mean, just pray that God would continue to stir in your heart a hatred for sin that's going to do nothing but draw your eyes away from God and his goodness and the life you were created for and lead you to death. The best way to do that, by the way, is to know the truth. The scriptures say Jesus has come and exposed the lies of the devil. Now that we have Jesus here that's opened our eyes, we should be able to see the evil whispers of the devil as the lies that they are and kill right, those lies as they come in. We should put sin to death. That means be known. Do not live on an island. Have people in your life that know who you are, that know where your sin is, and they're constantly trying to extract the devil's venom from your life and repent often. We tragically associate repentance with shame. Oh, everyone's going to know I'm a sinner. That is the whispers of the evil one. Repentance is quite literally a weapon to destroy the works of the serpent. Sin thrives in the dark. When you drag it into the light, you are crushing his head. Be someone who repents often. That's actually a mark of godliness. People who rarely repent are often walking in pride. People who repent often know they're a sinner desperate, in desperate need of a gracious Savior. So that's one way. Kill sin in your own life. Kill sin in others' life. Preach the gospel. Again, evangelize. Listen to Christ's commission. Go invite neighbors into your home and tell them the glorious truth that will crush the head of the serpent ultimately in their lives, where they are no longer of their father, the devil. They're no longer sons of disobedience, but the gospel has come in, and they have that glorious Ephesians 2 transition. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead and our sins made us alive in Christ. That happens, faith in that God happens through you preaching the gospel. Faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of God. Go evangelize and lastly, crush the devil by making disciples here. You should have an answer to the question, who is discipling you and who are you discipling? You should have people who are actively, regularly pouring into your life, who are in a relationship with you, who want you to look more like Jesus, and so they're constantly guiding you to the gospel, whether that's through the form of reading the scriptures together or praying together, and you should likewise be pouring into others. How can I make this person look more like Jesus? How can I, this broken vessel, take the glorious treasure of the gospel so that this person might Love Jesus more. Those are ways to crush the head of the serpent. The second, have confidence in the serpent crusher. Stop living as if the serpent wins. Stop being paralyzed by the latest news thing. Unsubscribe from the ridiculous email chains that just like are talking about how bad the world is and they end, they end with like, and they're coming into your home next. Sign pastor whoever, right? Unsubscribe from those ridiculous people who are just stirring fear in your heart and pointing you away from the reality that Christ crushes the head of the serpent. Live as if there is glorious victory at the end of the road. Memorize scripture. I put here one uh, that might be helpful for you to memorize every single day. John 16, 33. Jesus telling his disciples right before he's about to go die says this, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In this world, in the world, you will guaranteed have tribulation. And does he stop talking like most pastors do today? 
How does he finish his sentence? But take heart, I have overcome the world. Do you live like that? Do you have this peace as the tribulation of the world pours in and it seems to get darker and darker? Do you say, my king has overcome the world. He has crushed the head of the serpent and one day he will ultimately crush the head of the serpent and make all things new? Or are you cowering in terror as if the serpent wins? Let God's word shape how you live and let it eradicate your fears and anxieties. Number three, Rejoice and worship in your serpent crusher. I mean, how incredible is this? How many times have I mentioned how awesome man is in this teaching? Zero times. Man is the cause of all this mess, right? And yet God continually promises incredible things and sends his son seconds after Eve and Adam eat the fruit, promises one day he'll come and he won't fail when he's tempted and he'll be crushed for your iniquities so that you might be accounted as righteous. I mean, how, how incredible It's your God who makes that promise. And how incredible is your Savior who would leave his heavenly throne, his infinite riches, and come down to die and take the worst wrath imaginable so that you and I might be a part of his family, be adopted, be true offspring and adopted where we can call God, not just God, but Father. I mean, rejoice in your serpent-crushing Savior. And then lastly, a departure from all these things. Uh, but uh, worth talking about, consume good stories. Uh, Andrew uh, Nasili, again, one of these books, talks about this in, in his book. There, there's a sense in which uh, all stories are a reflection of this ultimate story, where there's a Savior who comes and through his death, through incredible sacrifice, saves and gets the girl at the end of the day. Right? Joe uh, Rigney, who's a uh, professor in Bethlehem Baptist Seminary said, uh, this story, the story of the Bible could be summarized as slay the dragon, get the girl, right? The bride of Christ. How many stories do we see out there that are a reflection of that? Almost all of them. This is actually how uh, J.R. Tolkien got, uh, or one of the key things that led to C.S. Lewis's conversion. He loved myths, and Tolkien was walking with him one day. They were good friends, and he said, you know, you love myths, And behind, you experience this joy when you read myths, and that's because behind every myth, there's a true myth with a capital M. Every story is a reflection of this story, the ultimate story. And that actually later would lead to C.S. Lewis's conversion, and Lewis embodied this. In fact, it's one of the reasons he wrote the Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, And there's a funny story I came across where Lewis uh, was, someone wrote a, a concerned mom was writing to Lewis, uh, C.S. Lewis about her son, Lawrence. He was reading the Chronicles of Narnia, and she was worried that he loved Aslan more than Jesus. So she wrote to him concerned, and C.S. Lewis wrote her back and said this, Lawrence can't really love Aslan more than Jesus, even if he feels that is what he is doing, for the things he loves Aslan for doing and saying are simply things that Jesus really did and said So that when Lawrence thinks he is loving Aslan, he really is loving Jesus and perhaps loving him more than he ever did before. So consume good stories. And as you feel that love for those characters in the story, there's a sense in which, you know, uh, Lee's, Lee's back, so I'll mention Lord of the Rings. When you read Lord of the Rings, you want to follow Aragorn. 
You wish he lived so you could go fight for him. You want someone like Gandalf into your life who just shows up at the last minute and gives you great counsel when you're exhausted. You read and you want to dive into the pages and know these characters. And one day, in a sense, you will. They're a reflection of the ultimate character, of the ultimate story with a capital S. Last thing I'll say, I I read uh, one of my favorite little quotes from one of C.S. Lewis's biographies. The biographer, his granddaughter, was reading the Chronicles of Narnia. She was nine, and she finished and wept to her grandfather and said, I don't want to go on living in this world. I want to go into uh, Narnia and live with Aslan. And the grandfather just said, sweetheart, one day you will. You will, except it'll be far better than you ever imagined. And so consume good stories because they are all a reflection of the ultimate story. I have resources there if you want to do a deeper dive. Uh, Let me repent to you. I lied. I said we would have time for questions, and I not only didn't leave enough time for questions, I went over our amount of time, uh, even though the clock is working, unlike last week. So I'm sorry. Uh, Please email me your questions, jared at theparkwaychurch.com. Let me pray for us and we will be dismissed. Father, how incredible are you? There's this sense in which when we read your scriptures and we see who you are, a God merciful to rebels and gracious to rebels and slow to anger when we do nothing but sin against you and abounding in steadfast love, we have this this Psalm 8 feeling of what is man that you're mindful of him, that you would care for us, that you would send your son for us, not just so that we wouldn't go to hell, but that you would have us in your family, that you would change our family line, that your spirit would take away our heart of stone and give us a living heart of flesh, that though we were nothing but rebels and followed our father, the devil, you redeemed us and counted us righteous and by your grace call us your sons and your daughters. And so we in this now and not yet period, Lord, we just want you to Open the eyes of our heart to this reality. These are all glorious promises, but if there's anything we see from your word, it's that you're the God who keeps glorious promises. And so I pray that our eyes would begin to see this reality that is true reality, and we would stop living in fear. We would stop living in the condemnation of the devil, knowing that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, and that we would live with the bold confidence of knowing that there is victory that has come not by our great hand, but by your infinitely mighty, glorious hand. And that we would actually live lives that declare to the world that we are your son's disciples by how you've transformed our hearts. I pray for uh, our time this morning as we gather and worship you and hear from your word that you would open our hearts to it, that we would see your son in Matthew 9, and that we would be transformed and we would love you more and love our neighbors more, and that the earth would be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. We pray this in your son's glorious name. Amen.